Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to this uh, first session in our series, Sell All You Have, Wealth, Poverty, and the Christian Tradition. It's uh, wonderful to see you all, and as we get started, I thought it would be helpful to frame this conversation uh, through the lens of a spiritual examine. Uh, an examine invites us to find God in all things and pay careful attention to how this Holy Spirit is moving in our own lives. And so it kind of goes through this process of recognizing where God is in our world, expressing gratitude for those gifts, and then a time for repentance for those things that we've done and left undone. And I think that's, for me, that's that's a helpful framework for this conversation because um, there are some things that we just don't like to talk about in church sometimes, uh, politics, um, money, uh, and other things. And for me, couching that in, well, we have to talk about it. It's part of our everyday life. Um, it affects how we live, what our communities look like. And so uh, while I feel like we have to talk about it, we also have to extend grace to one another because we all come from different places. Um, and uh, for me, uh, actually the Bible is really challenging on issues of wealth and poverty. Asks me, I feel like to do a lot of things that I uh, would not gear myself towards, um, especially when you have a family, but in any situation. So um, kind of just like sitting with the challenging questions and uh, not feeling like we have to have answers, uh, I would say is a big part of this series. So I wanna talk for a minute about what this series is and isn't about. Um, so I got a um, checklist here. So number one, it's not about stewardship. <laughs> there are times for stewardship um, and we may touch on what part of that means, um, but stewardship, can anybody give us like a textbook definition of what a stewardship campaign might look like? The church is asking you for your time, talent, and treasure. Mm -hmm. And they remind you that treasure is what these lights on. So it's asking you what you already have mm -hmm. and in what to do with it. So stewardship asks the questions of what you already have. The Bible and our tradition also asks the question of where does that wealth come from? So not just questions of what do you do with wealth once you have it, but um, where does it come from? Even was it justly or unjustly acquired? Um, and it challenges, I think, to sort of uh, um, extravagant generosity at times in a way that tithing doesn't quite, or, or time, talent, treasure doesn't quite get at. Um, so we're going to go a little bit beyond stewardship. Um, we're also, like I said, this is this is not a time for uh, judging others in our community. I think that we do have to recognize the fact that we all come from different places, um, especially in terms of wealth and poverty. Um, overall, Episcopalians are pretty well off, but that doesn't mean that every single Episcopalian is well off. <laughs> um, and that is a challenge in itself, I think, to think about why, why it is the case that we are uh, the community that we are. Um, but but needless to say, um, I, I found a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote that said, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. So time for self-examination, not other examination. 
Um, third, uh, what it is about. Um, so in my experience being an Episcopalian, I don't hear the word discipleship used a lot. Anybody disagree? Yeah, discipleship. Yeah, you know, so one thing that I love about um, being in this tradition is we try to stay away from words that like have all of these loaded meanings. So um, discipleship is one of them. You say, well, what does that mean? What does discipleship mean? So um, discipleship, if I had to just give a really brief definition, and this is actually from uh, a commentary on the gospel of Luke, which we'll be talking about a little bit because Luke talks about wealth and poverty all the time. Um, discipleship is a way of life. as a member of the repentant and saved people of God. So we might not use the word discipleship, but we talk about what is a Christian way of life all the time. But I think we do it oftentimes in terms of our baptismal covenant. Um, you know, the, the five questions uh, at the end of the baptismal covenant that ask us uh, to consider how we'll live. So discipleship though, I think is a bit harder of a word um, does anybody remember the passage in Luke? If, if any of you want to meet my disciple, uh, take up your cross and follow me. Don't hear that. In the baptismal liturgy, you you know, you know die to Christ and you rise with Christ. There is that imagery, but being a disciple is, I think, a little more challenging. I mean, all of the disciples except John were, um, were killed. Um, they literally did take up their cross. They literally all did sell all that they have. Uh, and gave it to the poor. So um, I kind of want to sit with this idea of what does it mean to be a disciple and are we still asked to be a disciple in those same ways? My hunch is we don't think that, but why we don't think that I think is uh, maybe a question for, for thinking. Um, and then I'll just add, how do we know what it means to be a disciple? Um, I think a really basic answer to that is imitating who Jesus is. We see Jesus to be in the Gospels and listening to his teaching. So the person and work of Christ would be another way of putting that. And finally, uh, an invitation to discernment, which I've kind of already covered, but um, asking questions about our own life, about what we do have. That is actually kind of a storage of questions. So maybe we are talking about storage of, um, but also where that comes from uh, and what God is calling us to do with it, how God is calling us to show generosity. Let's talk about what is wealth. How would you all define wealth? There's no wrong answers. Having more than you need. Having a roof over your head, food on the table, the ability to pay my bills, to get to a job. So that's interesting because you said maybe wealth is more and having those basic more than those basic needs but what you're suggesting is like just having well having them to the point that you don't need to fret about and you know they're there don't have to worry which is kind of not so you're back anymore than you yeah do you all think uh do you all think of uh wealth being something beyond money they have a wealth of knowledge mm hmm mm hmm and Jesus talked about storing up your treasures in heaven rather than on earth and sort of having that bankroll, I guess, outside outside of sort of our physical world as well. Eternal currency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
you know, there's certainly, but yeah, there's something more about uh, more than wealth to the good life or to happiness. You can have an abundance of joy, you can have an abundance of knowledge without being like having like money. Um, you don't, money is not the only thing that leads to a good life. And not be happy. <laughs> yeah, often, maybe. Or joyful. Yeah. One way, one way that people look about wealth is measuring the value of the all the assets of worth owned by a person. What are some assets that we could name that are part of our wealth? Like your house, your bank account. Yeah, yeah. What's that? Investments. Investments. I would also include um, education and class status in the society as definitely a component of wealth. So, um, like I said, stewardship often asks us what to do with those things that we have. Jesus asks us how we got those things and invites us to, like I said, so a sort of almost a reckless generosity. <laughs> um, we'll talk about the story of uh, selling all you have and giving it to the poor, or the stories where Jesus says, don't throw a dinner party for people you know are gonna throw one back for you. Throw, the, throw for the poor who you know can't throw a dinner party back for you. So things that don't make a lot of financial sense, um, the money comes from somewhere. I don't know if we're going to have time to do this, but just um, what are what are a few roots of our of our wealth? What are some ways that we accumulate or receive wealth? So governmental programs. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep coming back to class too. I mean, even if oh, yeah. you don't inherit money, you inherit sort of a position in society that absolutely can really take things for wealth. You know, like a key aspect of social mobility, you don't have to be wealthy, but if you're linked to people who are in a different class than you, that can help. Grace? Absolutely. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, let's talk about poverty now. How would you define poverty? And I would say not having a safety net. I, mm. The contrasts were so much starker when we lived in Bangladesh. I mean, I know they're here, but you could see them a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. And I felt like people in in that were on in poverty often were doing okay, but it took one disaster, one person getting sick, one thing, and that just put them into a, an untenable situation. Whereas even though we were living as volunteers in a that society, I knew I had a family to back me up. I knew that organization would back me up. I knew, I mean, it's just, you have a safety net. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, that's huge. Well, I mean, even as rich as our country is, we discover in some ways just how shallow and um, different ours in the governmental safety net was during the pandemic mm -hmm. because ours doesn't include, necessarily include health. Um, you know, and that just, mm -hmm. just having that not be something that's guaranteed is, um, or is the wins of political decisions, it's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in a situation of poverty, you're probably more likely to be in the middle of some sort of violence, more likely. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so. I think, 
That's why I said, yeah. let's, let's rephrase yeah. that. Yeah. That's okay, Mary. No, it's, but it is true. Yeah, gun violence is certainly a, a big part of that, I think. Yeah, and I was wondering if you want to take that to spiritual poverty as well. Uh, yeah, I was thinking okay. about that. Yeah, what do you mean? Um, well, I'm I really curious because mm -hmm. Jesus talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, which I have always been like, what does that actually mean? I, is that word core the same word that they use for being poor financially? That, oh, but I, to me, poor in spirit means you you just you don't have hope. You don't have mm. uh, you can't see the good side of things. Mm. And see, I thought poor in spirit were you just are empty of, of anything uh, spiritual. The U.S. Census Bureau has a definition of poverty um, that I'll put up here as well, just as we're thinking about different definitions. Um, two different versions of the official poverty me measure. Number one, poverty thresholds produced by the U.S. Census Bureau and two federal poverty guidelines produced by the Department of Health and Human Services. The thresholds are used to measure poverty, whereas poverty guidelines are used to determine eligibility for certain federal programs. And you can see the poverty guidelines from last year uh, for the 48 states. Um, it's kind of a joke. <laughs> it's, this doesn't even fly in South Bend, <laughs> much less in New York or, yeah, yeah. So, um, obviously, that's important. It is important how we define poverty as a society, because then we can figure out what to do with our excess of goods, because we do have those, <laughs> and how to distribute those. I'm not an economist. I'll leave you all to um, tell me more about how, how we might do that. But um, Well, one of the things that the federal government is, if kids are coming from those kinds of damage, you have free into these reduced lunches, which then... Yeah. Uh, in the old days, I don't know if Trump is, I mean, Indiana's still doing it. You had book fees. And so if you had three reduced lunches, you also had no book fees. So there were there were those kinds of things. Um, what does that mean? Sorry, no book fees? You, you had to pay for, you didn't have free books. So you had to pay for books. Indiana's one of the three states in the country that still charges a textbook rental fee for yeah. public school. Which is also you can also then declare it when you're doing like your your federal financial aid for colleges that doesn't count as an education. Awesome. Free education, you know, like a what? But, but those were those were ways that okay. they, they yeah. also added to helping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So okay, we've talked a little bit about what how we define wealth and poverty. Actually, I'm going to switch the order here. Let's actually look at our own context here for maybe five minutes, and then we'll spend the rest of the last half hour actually looking at some some texts. Um, but let's look at our own context. So um, how many of you have heard of the Poor People's Campaign? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an initiative the Episcopal Church has supported the last several years. But um, if you've heard of... Uh, um, uh, William Barber, he's one of the pastors that's affiliated with, with the movement. Uh, they did this audit of poverty in the U.S., and this is like probably outdated. It's five years old, so <laughs> take it for what it is. Um, but um, just a few things, and these you've probably heard these, but the 400 wealthiest Americans own more wealth than the bottom 64% of the U.S. population, equivalent of one person owning as much as wealth as 510,000 persons. 
2017, just three white men owned as much wealth as the bottom half of the US population. Nearly 41 million Americans live below the federal poverty line. And I think Andy, what you're saying is probably, it's probably under that 200% threshold is what that probably means. Um, and then, um, you know, I'll just go to the, the last point, which is that America is, is a debtor nation. Um, so excluding the value of a car, 19% of US households have either zero wealth or their debts, their debts exceed their value of their assets. And you see um, percentage-wise, um, that's 30% of black households, 27% of Latinx households, and then 14% of white households, which gets to the dimension of race that you mentioned, Amanda. Uh, so yeah, twice as, you know, people of color are twice as likely to have zero or uh, their zero wealth or their debts exceeding the value of their assets. Um, and then local poverty and wealth. Um, so 685 cities in Indiana, South and ranks uh, 12th among the poorest cities and a uh, percent of, it, of individuals living below the poverty line, 23%. Um, percent of, of individuals under 18 living under the poverty line, 34%. Um, medium household income, $40,000. Um, and Granger, um, just to note, uh, the fifth wealthiest, wealthiest with a median income of 101,000, so about double. So there's um, income disparity everywhere, but um, we see it in our own community as well. Uh, I mean, I wish I could have broken it down neighborhood to neighborhood, you know, because that's another good way to look at it. But um, just to say that uh, these are issues that are relevant uh, everywhere. So this is really interesting to me. So this, this book just came out um, by Miguel Escobar called The Unjust Steward. Uh, and it was last week that Father Brian went over this uh, parable. Um, but he, he talks about poverty during Jesus' time. Um, and, and basically the substance here that I wanted to show was um, that 75 to 90% of the Roman world lived close to subsistence level near, at, or below, uh, and were struggling for survival and sustenance on a daily basis. So the idea of like, give us this day our daily bread was a real prayer. <laughs> like actually people mm -hmm. like, like were depending on food. They didn't know where it was coming from day to day. Um, life expectancy was somewhere between 20 and 30 years old, probably closer to 20. Uh, Alliance. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, that was just a life expectancy. There was a lot of yeah. infant deaths. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you factor that in, and then either, you know, stillbirths, stillborns, and then infant diseases that we didn't have vaccines for until recently, relatively. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so but but it is interesting to think for me to think about like, you know, stories in the Bible about famine or food are actually stories about poverty and wealth. Um, you know, like having basic needs. That was our definition, having your basic needs met. So like throwing a dinner party in Jesus' day and age was probably like a sign of pretty exorbitant wealth. 
Um, whereas we kind of think, oh, dinner party, like that's a pretty normal thing to have. Um, so um, that's the context for our readings. That's the last uh, slide. But now I want to move towards um, this page. And does everyone have a highlighter? If you don't, we'll pass them around or a pen. Now we can do some of the fun stuff. Oh, thank you. So when we think about, um, you know, the question of discipleship, about how we should live, you know, scripture is obviously one place we look to. And um, needless to say, and I hope this comes out in the series, but um, the Bible doesn't have one view of wealth and poverty. Um, the Bible was written over the span of uh, thousands of years. Um, people from all different cultures and backgrounds, um, people who were uh, struggling in deep oppression, people who were um, not in that situation. Um, you think about the Hebrew scriptures, uh, what it, how does it say that God blessed people like Abraham and the patriarchs um, by giving them basically everything they needed? Um, if you follow me, I'll give you everything you have, everything you need. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Um, some of the most successful kings were David and Solomon. Um, and that was, uh, you know, the, the, those scriptures kind of say those were the result of God's favor and their wisdom. So there are, there are different views and approaches to wealth and poverty in the scripture. Um, but I, I picked a couple here that I thought we could read through. And so we're going to, we're going to really just skim these. And so you've got your highlighters. I was hoping you could highlight or underline where you see um, these texts talking about wealth or poverty. And then we'll kind of um, explore some of those themes afterwards. Somebody want to read the Luke passage to get us started? I could. Great. Um, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Thank you. Thank you. All right, somebody want to read the Jeremiah passage? I will. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Heart the cry of my poor people, so far and wide in the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her pain not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. 
the hurt of my poor people. I am hurt. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no precision here, there? Why then has the help my poor people not been restored? And I should have clarified, but you probably got the sense that um, God is the one speaking um, in that passage, this Jeremiah passage. Mary was the one in the first one. And then uh, Matthew. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to them, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have all this, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give your money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said to them, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Well, limiting it to three was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and hope I don't know how effective it is to read them all back to back like that. But I'll ask um what are some general things you're seeing about wealth and poverty in these scriptures? I see a connection with um, those who are in con uh, those who are with the Lord, who follow the Lord, who see the Lord, will be better off. Um, you, if you leave everything but follow, you'll have 12 thrones. You'll receive a hundredfold. Um, the Lord mourns his poor people. So he's, um, he has compassion, you know, <laughs> that, that gut feeling for, um, his poor people, um, and uh, uh, yep. Mary is recognizes herself as being lifted up. She's quoting Anna. 
from the book of Samuel, but she's, <laughs> you know, they aren't her words, but she's, um, you know, I, the Lord has done great things for me. He has shown threat and strength and all I'm doing is following him, paying attention to him. Yeah. And then things, so that's, that's what I see. And she also, and, and this is also linked on all three, that God can scatter the proud and lift them the lowly. This is a compassionate God, though. This the you could see that God is connected with His people, as well as people reaching reaching out to God. That God sees this. When He says, "Everyone who loves houses or brothers, sisters, or father, mother, wife, children, 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 And if we all left our families, then there would be even more poverty-stricken families. <laughs> yeah. So, no. These are these are these are the questions. <laughs> so, on the one hand, you ask, "What are you know the views of wealth and poverty here?" But then, like you were saying, Amanda, you take it to the next step, left step, and ask, "Is God calling us to?" this way of life is this what it means to be a disciple follower of jesus um and a couple of questions that i'll that'll add to this is um in the jeremiah passage is is poverty an ideal here would you say why would um why would you all say that it's not an ideal at least in this passage in which one uh the jeremiah passage Maybe god is warning god is warning yeah. Poverty. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Some yeah. And they live on alms of other people, right. and well, they have to work right. to give them alms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does kind of feel like these passages are in, you know, there's some tension because on the one hand, God lifts up the poor. Poverty is not an ideal state. Um, but Jesus is also saying, if you want to be my disciples, actually, so he tells this rich young ruler, this is usually how this passage is presented as, you know, Jesus tells this rich young ruler, he has to sell all he has. And it's just so provocative and you can't believe it. 
he's asking this. Um, in Luke 12, Jesus is just having a conversation with the disciples. And he says, sell your possessions and give alms. So I, I'm saying it's not just about the rich. Jesus is not just asking the rich young ruler to sell all that he has. He's, he's asking, <laughs> and the early church, if you remember in Acts, mm -hmm. when they're described, it says they sold all they had and shared everything in common. So there is this theme that it's not just Jesus being like, well, just because you're rich, you have to sell everything. This is sort of a, um, a marker of discipleship. And uh, yeah, there, there are hands. So this is good. Yeah, Tamison and then Rhonda. <laughs> um, but the, the commentary on this said, um, with, in the um, talking to a rich young man, I'd like to, um, and I'd like to read to you what Jesus is essentially saying to him: If you will be perfect, complete, come follow me. The rest is only incidental. And with the rest, there's no universal application. That was a specific command to that person. Um, and it's not a requirement for everyone. So as far as that one, that, and, and it does say also that the early church attempt um, was a disaster. And in order to sell, other people have to buy. So they need their money. And, and if you're selling your possessions to me, I'm giving my money to you. Now, who's wealthy now? We have to give that away. <laughs> A wonderful escape hatch that thinks it's all really easy or says for mortals it is impossible for God all I'll things are impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so the one yeah. this is like yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. the exclusion the provision here. A hundred yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But uh, I, I still don't understand the that What does that mean? Well yeah. and then well, there's yep, Rhonda, yes, you you're Yeah, so and it's a very relative thing of, you know, anybody could say, well, I don't have much. Anybody, virtually anybody can say that. <laughs> yes, I've heard rich people say they aren't rich. Uh -huh. Com comparative. We we are really good at playing the comparison game. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um because there are there are 400 people who own as much as 64% of people and if you know one of those you're like, well, I'm definitely not wealthy if that's right. Um so um but but to but to bring some of these um things together why don't we sell all that we have if we think we have a call to discipleship in some way? I'm hearing this isn't a universal command. Um, this doesn't make economic sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the idea of selling all we have with families is maybe irresponsible, mm -hmm. reckless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
So these are a few things I'm hearing why we don't, why the church, why most members of the church, why the story of St. Francis of Assisi selling all he have is so, is, it's so exceptional because you're like, wow, someone did it. <laughs> that was crazy. But, um, and then actually, like you were saying, Lisa, um, each of us has our own discernment that we have to do. And that is important. But I guess a couple of questions I would leave us with is what, what, what does God want for everyone? Are there things that God wants for each of us? So lifting up the poor and how does Mary say it? Lifting up the lowly, sending the rich away. But is it John the Baptist who says um, every raise, lowers every mountain, raises up every valley. So, you know, and brings us to- brood of vipers. Yeah, he does that too. Yeah. So, so you get this dimension that like, ideally everyone has everything that they need and no one lacks anything. That's, I think what we could say is what God, God wants for all of us. But as far as money, we have a minute on the back page, uh, Luke 19, we won't read this, but here's another story of someone with wealth. He's a tax collector. He takes more than he needs and pockets it. And his salvation lies in the fact that he pays them back what he took from them four times as much. If I defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. I think that there How are times. Do do that? I yeah, I know. <laughs> he needs a because lot. He, had he so needs much. a lot of wealth in order to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there, there's a real example of someone who acquired wealth unjustly, and where their salvation lies. And when we think about race in America, David, why society have accumulated wealth on massive scale due to in part an economic system that relied on slavery because a whole member of the whole group of the population was working for free forced reparations start to make sense as a means to repaying back what was fraudulently taken um so i don't think there's a lot of answers here <laughs> there's a lot of questions uh, notice how he also says, I must stay at your house today. Well, if he was really poor, he wouldn't have a house. So then where would Jesus go? So Jesus <laughs> depends on the, he depends on the wealthy. Yes, it's true. These are all you know, true. These are all true. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyways, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Uh, the next couple weeks are next week is Mother Tina's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. Cool. It's a huge topic. And then the next week, um, Dr. Jerry McKinney from Notre Dame, he's a professor of theology. I kind of got the idea of the series from him a little bit because he he's he has this idea of writing a whole Christian ethics book through the scope of the Rich Young Ruler passage. Okay. So I'm I'm really curious to see what that means for him and, and how he uh, looks at the Christian life through that passage.